Welcome to the Scientific Method. We are Pacific Northwest University of Health Sciences foray into the world of intellectually entertaining dialogue. From healthcare to pop culture, controversial conversations to advancements in scientific technology and more, we provide expert insight on science and society. We are an exercise in overcoming the noise and discovering the truth. Uh, thanks again for joining us on The Scientific Method. Um, today's conversation is centered around post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. Um, we are having this conversation, as we have all of them, just to cover a public health topic. But this one seems to be one that is not only uh, a public health topic for people in the medical field, but for society in general that um, that draws a lot of interest. So we brought in uh, a few, being a medical school, we have many medical students who are actually veterans, and then we have many uh, professors who have a lot of medical information at their disposal, obviously. Um, so being able to cross both of those worlds with such an often misunderstood uh, thing such as PTSD was an opportunity that we couldn't really pass up. Um, so hopefully this is another enlightening conversation for you guys and gives you an insight into something that is often discussed but seems to be... Uh, relatively misunderstood in a lot of ways. So uh, without further ado, here is our conversation on PTSD with Dr. Robert Sorrells and Lucas Myers. So today we are talking about the supernational topic of PTSD um, so we've invited on some people who have uh, a really interesting insight into it. Um, so if you could both just introduce yourself to the people listening. Sure. I'm Robert Sorrells. I'm uh, the Associate Dean of Preclinical Education here at PNWU. Uh, my background's in neuroscience, and that's why I'm here. I'm Lucas Myers. I'm a second-year medical student here at PNWU. Uh, I was in the military for eight years as, as, a, as a pararescueman, and uh, that's why I'm here. All right, so today we've come together to talk about PTSD, and again, it's a national topic that uh, there are just so many different corners and aspects of the conversation that it, it often gets lost in the, the conversation itself. So to, to get a better understanding of it, we have these two people here who are able to comment on it from different perspectives that hopefully will put it into a bit better of a context for us. Um, so, Lucas, if we could start with you, uh, yeah. could you talk a bit about your military history? and okay. just your experience in this conversation? Yes. Um, like I said, I was in for eight years uh, in the Air Force as a pararescueman, and my job in the Air Force was to rescue people behind enemy lines under fire and combat, as well as doing, uh, doing maritime rescues in the oceans or do high-altitude mountain, uh, mountain rescues. And so uh, part of my training was around three years, three to four years of training, and it was... That itself was pretty uh, stressful in a, in a way, and then I deployed twice to Iraq, and uh, uh, probably each deployment was about four months, and I've been on a, on a few stateside missions as well, and a few body recoveries too. In the training itself, that's been an interest in me, and and uh, just looking at this, were there any elements of that training that you feel? Um, prepared you for the the potential stresses of that job because it sounds like there was uh, obviously with your experience a lot of really stressful horrible things that you likely went through yeah uh, the training was very difficult 
like my class started out with there everybody's pre-selected to do this job and uh, you do like a like an aptitude test a physical exam um and there's about you know 90 90 to 95 percent washout rate by the by the end of that school and a lot of that has to do with stress and we had to get psyche involved every week it was pretty stressful and, and that school itself was three months long then i had another two and a half years after that of selection but not as not as intense as that first school uh it was very stressful uh, the stress level was introduced by water mostly and it was a lot of uh, hold your breath and uh, do tasks under water and if you come up you you basically have a mark against you you do it twice you could you can get kicked out type of thing Jeez. and so it was a uh, it was very difficult and uh very stressful because you you're you you're basically training your mind to to avoid any panic and uh, and just keep your focus on the objective and they're trying to simulate the stresses of combat and and to a certain extent i think it was worse because uh, at least you could breathe, you know, and that's important. And so when I was in those stressful situations, it didn't affect me as much as other people that didn't have that training because I had that, I guess, tolerance of stress that uh, was developed that training. Yeah. Do you credit that to any sort of uh, just like a natural disposition in yourself? I imagine with such a high washout rate, it must be strange to watch the other people and to succeed yourself. Yeah, most, you know, you would think it'd be the, uh, a very physical, uh, like the people who are like top-end athletes in college would be the be a very good predictive factor for this, but it wasn't so. It was it was a lot of what has to do with me- with mental, and um, like I said, I had a big questionnaire before. They, they try to uh, see what is the actual factor that makes people succeed in this environment, <clears throat> and they there isn't one, really. I, I think the biggest correlation I, I have heard of, I, would, I didn't see the numbers, was if you're in an individual sport in high school and you could kind of get that confidence with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's about it. It's really very hard to figure out who's going to succeed and who's not. Yeah, the individual side of it, kind of like that ability to lock in, especially if you're underwater and you have to do yeah. some sort of a task, <laughs> I imagine that's pretty important. Yeah. So in your experiences in the military, uh, watching others around you, what were your experiences with, if any, uh, PTSD or since, uh, since your deployment and coming back? Um, how have you seen that take hold of uh, maybe yourself or other people around you? Well, uh, I guess from, from my training anyways, I can kind of comment on it uh, for myself, I guess. The initial training was, that, like I guess, a lot of water training. I was fairly decent at water uh, stuff, you know, hold my breath and go for long swims, whatever. But I can tell you that after three months of it, I just started getting panic attacks looking at water because it's that stress. And then that, um, I seen people around me also get kind of anxious, you know, and um, it's kind of a joke because like every time we, every day, it's a daily event. We do this underwater training stuff for like four hours at a time. And uh, every time before this training event, everybody's using the bathroom. It's just like so stressful. People people are like sometimes even crying before and stuff. It's pretty nasty. And uh, we do this uh, training, you know, and we go through, and people, some people graduate, and we go to deployment. And it almost, it's, uh, for me, I didn't really see any PTSD signs um, during deployment because I think it was, for me, it was normal looking down, you know. It's like we're we're taught to be in a state of vigilance, they call it. And you're always trying to look out for it. You're like a there's like a there's like a threshold. Like the lowest is like is if you're on right now, you're not very you don't feel threatened, you know. 
And then when you're overseas, you want to be at an intermediate level. They call it a yellow level, where you kind of you kind of you're on guard. And then when a threat comes up, and you go right to red, and that's when you like want to pull the trigger, or you know you have no hesitation. And so when you're over there overseas, they want to be in an intermediate threat level 24/7. And you know that's what I think that's what caused uh, some of my like, hypervigilance here. You know, and just being at, in that mindset of being okay. Well, anytime something could happen, and you know. And so for me, anyways, I didn't really, I, I didn't really recognize anything with my friends until I came back, and it was actually years after. You know, I, uh, I, I noticed signs. You know, like um, for once for me, it was uh, I think I drank a little bit too much. You know, some substance abuse, and that's pretty common for PTSD. Or I don't, I'm not, I don't, I don't, I don't have PTSD. I never been diagnosed with PTSD, mm-hmm. but I, I do have some anxiety over it. Um, and I can also say that sometimes my, my, my relationships suffered too. Uh, I, I'm sometimes after I came back, I, it's hard to talk about it with people. And I, sometimes after that, I feel isolated because you, you get in that, it's just, you can't, it's hard to relate to other people, you know? Yeah. Um, again, in researching this, that was one thing that kept coming up is, so few people actually serve in the armed forces now. I think the percentage that I saw was uh, like 0.5% of the U.S. population serves in the armed forces. So that leaves 99.5% that really, I imagine, would have a hard time relating with anything that you're talking about right now. And in dealing with those symptoms, I think that a really beneficial thing would be to talk about them and to be able to express how you feel with people to get over them. And that must be so hard to do. And there are other people who have no idea how to relate to anything that you're saying. Yeah, I, for me it was uh, it was I I, I want to talk to people. I want to talk to the guys that I knew downrange, you know, I, and that's what I could really talk to. And uh, really, the isolation started when I got out of the military, and then I went to college, and then um, I didn't really have anybody to relate to. But you know, there wasn't anyone there, and I could talk to my parents, I guess, or you know, my brother. But even they wouldn't really understand, and, and I, I don't want to tell them everything. Somebody's too personal. I think they uh, would look at me differently, maybe. Yeah. When you were in the service and around the people who could relate to you, um, did you have the the same sort of level of stress that you had afterwards when you couldn't really relate to others? And how did that um, process go? Did you talk to other uh, people in the armed for- forces about what you were experiencing or, or what they were experiencing at the time? Well, when I was when I was down range. Um, you know, a lot of it has to do with uh, we were lighthearted most of the time, and that's it's really important. And I think a lot of my stress got relieved with that lighthearted jokes and, and that kind of thing. But mm-hmm. like I said, once I got back over over from home and um, got out of the military, and I got out of that life completely, and <clears throat> I was in this in in academia, I guess, or college. It was. It, I think the stress level was different. Um, particularly, I had some life circumstances at the time that made it even more difficult, um, and. I was uh, in Florida also, and which I'm not from Florida. I'm, I'm from Washington, and so I had no family, no no friends, and it was isolated to this college in Jacksonville, and that's probably a mistake in my in my part. Like, if I, do it, if I do it all over again, I'll go back to Washington and have some kind of support structure. Now, the support structure um, in and of itself with that, that low service rate, and so few people being able to relate to this, it seems that that's a struggle for a lot of soldiers. Um, 
just coming back to a, a community that doesn't have any way to really have a reference for what it is that they're talking about or support them in some sort of a system like you may have otherwise. Um, do you see that as an effect, maybe not on yourself or you probably would with the, the going to Florida, but I feel like a lot of people when they return, even to home today, communities are a bit more divided. People are a bit more individualistic and you don't have that close connection to others where you would really feel comfortable in talking about anything, especially something so personal as stresses like that. Yeah. One of the things I was, that I, I believe why I was so isolated is because when you're overseas for X amount of months, life goes on back here at home and people move on and people do other things and they make connections with other people. And when time you come back, it may be a whole different story. And, uh, yeah, that was one of the reasons why I kind of went to Florida. Cause I, you know, I was eight, I mean, eight years later, who's, who's going to have, who's going to have the life, you know, their friends back at home are, are, are moved on by then, you know? And so I just figured I might as well be next to the beach. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. Not a bad fallback plan. <laughs> And coming back and uh, being around people again, how did that relate to when you're in the service? I understand when you're in the military, you're pretty much always near somebody or there's somebody that you within arm's reach, even when you're sleeping at night. Um, and when you're going through such a stressful period of time, I think that there's probably some, at least like an evolutionary benefit to having somebody nearby, somebody that you know supports you. And then when you return to a society where you're kind of separated, how, how did that play a role in the, your dealing with it? That's a good point because I'm around the same guys every day, 24-7. We had like these huts, you know, or not. We had actually had nice trailers. It was really nice. It was like, you know, AC and we had our own little community room. And we're, we have a 24-7 mission, you know. we uh, So we're always around each other. We all had really tight bonds. And uh, and we had a level of trust there. It's, I think it's hard to match. And uh, when you get out, when you get back home, level of trust is pretty high there. And you also you also respect everybody else around you because at that level, you, uh, people were selected, you know. You, you, and you earn your spot there, and there's a, there's a level of respect, inherent respect that you have with everybody. And so you can tell people things, and people respond in a non-judgmental way because they only they respect who you are and that kind of thing so you come back and you know and um like i said you have that you lost relationships because you're you're gone for x amount of months and uh when i'm back in the states anyways i was gone three-fourths out of the year doing other uh, training exercises around the country and so i really didn't have i had no one uh as i was stationed in georgia at the time and I really had no one to talk to other than the guys I deployed with. And so I, I know these guys from day one of training, uh, from the four year or three years in training I, I spent with them. And so I've gotten pretty good, you know, we know each other very well to the point where if we go into a room, we know what everybody's going to do. You know, we know if they're going to go left or right or straight to that kind of level. And you need to have that the kind of you know, level of knowledge of your, of your partners there because, you know, you go into – you can be going with some pretty sticky situations and you got to have that level of trust and you got to have, and you train every day together. And so, yeah. Now on the relief side of that, Dr. Sorrels, um, is there sort of like a neurological side to that level of comfort with somebody in such a stressful situation and especially, uh, being removed from that level of comfort and coming back somewhere and dealing with those stresses? How would that affect, uh, just the mindset of somebody? Well, I think, Lucas is talking about a, a lot of different things here, okay? So first of all, Lucas is talking about a commitment, okay? So when, when servicemen come back, we thank them for their service. Um, but I think that 
if you don't have that frame of reference. So when he's with his his with his um, buddies overseas, um, they all share a frame of reference. So they instantly know how to communicate with each other. When he comes back, people don't have that same frame of reference. So they say, "Well, thank you for your service," you know, without understanding that really it was a commitment, um, not not a thing that you went and did and then it's over. So it was a a, a lifetime type of commitment. So I think that to Paul, to answer your first part of the question, we're, we're primates and primates are social creatures and we don't fare very well in isolation. Um, but I think it's more than just the isolation, it's, it's being able to share a frame of reference, a mental frame of reference with a group of people. Um, so Lucas has stories that he can share with people that may uh, astound them, but they can't share that frame of reference about what it means. Um, the other thing that, that Lucas is talking about is that when you're in this constant state of, he was describing as sort of an intermediate threat, okay, that causes an incredible amount of, of neurophysiological events to happen. Uh, stress cascades, metabolic cascades, changes in blood flow. So staying in that type of situation for a long amount of time is gonna make you more susceptible to the stress and more susceptible to uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, and, and so we're, we're putting them in an environment um, that's, that's not conducive to their health. Um, now, war, of course, isn't conducive to health. You know, that's not what war is. But I think we could do, perhaps do a better job of when we bring soldiers back to the country, do a better job of reintegrating them into society with this understanding that they don't have anybody that they can really talk to other than telling them stories, okay? Um, so I, I see social context in this, I see physiological context in this, um, and then just, it's not just being around other people, it's being around other people that you can, that you can share your frame of reference with. It's an interesting thing that you bring up with the thank you for your service, because I had that in my notes. Just the idea of how we approach soldiers who return um, and showing our appreciation for them. You see, you know, people say thank you for your service, or you see these public uh, showings of support, whether it's in an NFL game where they have a uh, soldier on the field or uh, commercials or whatever. Um, do you think that that's even an effective way to to have these uh, armed forces members return to society, or does that kind of alienate you a bit more? Well, I mean, you can use the argument of, of extremes. I mean, I'd rather have that and have come back and get, get spat on, yeah. you know? So I don't... I don't mind people thanking me, you know, I, I, that's great. Thanks. You know, uh, I guess what I could say is when I, I guess I could story I could get, I could give when I got back from my first deployment, I went through Baltimore and I got out of Baltimore and they had like this 200 plus people lining the tarmac, you know, you know, shaking our hands and that kind of stuff. But that was really, that was really like a, that's a good thing, you know? And then that, I think that was, uh, that was a good welcome back. And, and so there are people out there who really do care, you know, and I, I truly believe that. But sometimes, of course, people, people say thank you for your service because they feel, they feel obligated to say it too. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, it's, it's still better than nothing, you know. And, yeah. And I, I, I don't expect people to say thank you for anything, you know, because I, I didn't join just to, just to be thanked. You know, I joined because of my own personal reasons. And so just them thanking me is just icing on the cake. Yeah. As I uh, thought about that, I had written that down because I was thinking if people usually when they say thank you for your service, they're saying it from a place in their heart. You know, they mean it. But 
I don't I don't know how helpful that is. And of course, it's not like uh, people returning are really looking for help. But I feel like society kind of should uh, offer a bit more than just the thank you when you're walking through the airport. Or you know, is there is there some sort of a, a societal measure that you could see taking place that would make soldiers integration back into uh, this whole world that people don't really reference or understand all that well um can you think of anything that would make it a bit easier well i i mean the big be- the biggest thing you can do is be be accepting the way you can come back um uh for me it was it's just basically being welcome and not being hostile coming back i mean i, I can't imagine back in vietnam coming back and just being people with the community being hostile towards you because it's a political deal and uh at least when i came back it wasn't during the Vietnam era, and people were, were shaking my hand and giving me gifts, you know, buying buying me gas at gas stations and that kind of thing, mm. and that was that was very nice. Uh, and when I come back, anyways, it's, it's mandatory in the Air Force, anyways, that you have to get a, a psyche valve for two weeks. You're under watch for two weeks and making sure you're okay. So I, I knew I was like I was being looked after, anyways, uh, for the government wise. The government was was making sure I wasn't gonna go. Um, you know, nuts in my room or something like that. I was I had communication with somebody. Let's look, can we talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So, so Lucas, did you when you were overseas, were you with um, soldiers from other countries? Yeah. And did you notice any differences in their demeanor or the way they went about their daily activities? Did you notice any difference between them and and um, what was happening with you and your 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 uh, U.S. compatriots? Well, I mean, like uh, the other other countries, we didn't really converse very much with them. It was just kind of like drill groups, you know, like their group, their group over there, group over here. And um, if we did work with them, would be their their, op- their officers come over and get a brief. Yeah, so you didn't really have an opportunity to see any differences. I I mean, not 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 during wartime. I, I did work with Japanese self defense force for a while, and I mean, they were pretty outgoing folk there, you know. Um, yeah. Well, the, the reason I'm asking is that I, I know some individuals that work um, with in the militaries of other countries, um, and some of the things that they do with their first of all, they only allow one deployment; they mm-hmm. won't allow multiple deployments. That has to be a career decision, so not, you can't just sign up for another deployment. Um, the other thing is is that when their soldiers are brought back, they don't come back to the, to their home country immediately. They're taken to an, uh, a neutral site, and it's the same type of thing. It's a psyche valve, but the psyche valve includes massages, uh, steam baths, activities, um, all types of normal or, or a little bit pampered social types of activities. Then they bring those soldiers back and they do that with their, with their, with their group, with their cohort. And then when they're brought back into the country, um, then they're basically uh, d- discharged. So they spend two to four weeks with their own group being pampered and talked to and in a sense reintegrated mm-hmm. and those countries that do that like canada and greece they have really low um uh, ptsd rates mm-hmm. now there's probably a lot of other reasons why those rates are different but i was just kind of wondering if maybe mm-hmm. you noticed something about the difference in the groups of soldiers on the on the um you know certainly not on the battlefield but in your sort of everyday activity yeah i uh, i didn't deploy with actually uh with like canadians so i don't really know yeah yeah, it's interesting that you talk about that too, because I was reading about some of the other nations that are involved in war more often. We Israel, for example, um, seems to be pretty much endless, some sort of a, a conflict going on, and they were uh, their PTSD rates are around one percent versus ours, which uh, for this past 
cycle that I've been looking at, it's around 11 to 20 percent. Um, and a lot of people credit that to the idea that the community understands it a bit more. They understand the impact of war and conflict because everybody, uh, all the males in that society are expected to serve and they kind of go through that same process together and they, they know what it is. They know what each other are facing and they kind of know how to deal with it. And that's why I bring up that stat of the 0.5% actually serving. Because I imagine when you come back to a society that really understands what you've gone through, it's easier to integrate a bit and talk to people and feel more open. Or if you return somewhere where the vast majority of people kind of look at you with that stigma that you had had said earlier, where you're afraid that if you tell them your experiences, they're going to look at you differently permanently. I don't think that that would be good for healing in any way. So uh, one of the quotes that I had pulled... um, was from an anthropologist, actually, which was interesting. Uh, His name is Brandon Court, and he said, PTSD is a disorder of recovery, and if the treatment only focuses on identifying symptoms, it uh, pathologizes and alienates vets. But if the focus is on family and community, it puts them in a situation of collective healing. Uh, So what's your take on that idea of trying to treat this and the societal standards that are are, kind of limiting in treating it if it if that is, in fact, the case. Well, like I said, uh, when I come back from deployment, you they give us two weeks, um, and they give us a, a psyche eval, but the two weeks you have off pretty much. You go back to your family, and you get to spend time with your wife and kids if you have them. Uh, but for, from what I understand, from I mean, uh, from the stats that I've seen, that, that first two weeks is a very critical time. It's the decompression time, and sometimes... Uh, you have your wife, and you have an increased rate of domestic violence, that kind of thing, because you're you're just uh, high strung. I mean, maybe Dr. Soros is right. Maybe that's the best way to go to a neutral area with people you're comfortable with, and you've seen the same things with, and you decompress together, rather than just like all of a sudden you're just going from an intermediate threat to no threat with your family. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's kind of dangerous, you know. Yeah. Could you talk a bit about um, just the bonds that you developed when you were overseas? Um, that was fascinating to me. The idea that the people you're around, you know them really intimately and you can rely on them and you know that they trust you to be able to be relied on and to the point where you're willing to sacrifice yourself for them and vice versa. And uh, upon returning from the armed forces, uh, soldiers really don't have anything like that, I imagine, ever again in life. Um, Do you think that plays a part in I don't know if it would be considered PTSD at that point or if there would have to be some other sort of diagnosis on the idea that you don't feel that you have a reliance on somebody else. Yeah, it's more of the, 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 the isolation part of it, I think, has to do with that. It's, like I said, that trust level is really hard to match. Um, you come back, and I guess I was in, I was in, a, the, I was in college, I began my, my associate's degree, I guess, in, in Florida, and I didn't have anyone to talk to, and it was... It was just hard to relate that relate to someone else, and you don't have that trust and and that bond, like you said. Uh, yeah, but that bond comes over time. It was not like because I uh, I deployed with somebody, I'm just oh, I just lifeline bond. No, it was because I trained with them from day one, four years before, and then I went to deploy with them for four months, and then I came back, trained with them again for the next year, go back and you know four months again, and then so it's like it's like seven year relationship, and it's, uh, and you work with them every day, and you just get to the point where you do this. You do dangerous, you do dangerous things, you know, together every day for seven years. Like skydiving, I, I did a lot of skydiving with the Air Force, a lot of rock climbing, and so and a lot of like other things, you know, that require 
your, your, your life's in your buddy's hands all the time. And so you get to that point, there's no way you can match that going back to the, the regular world. I mean, I'm married, I have a wife, uh, but I don't trust, I don't trust my wife to, to climb a mountain with me and, and making, making sure I won't fall down to the ground, you know, cause mm-hmm. she's not trained in that. But, but I trust her, I trust her, but it's just a different level of trust. It's, it's a only trust you can get through combat, I think. Yeah. Was there, did you notice anything when you returned on having that separation of trust from all those people that you'd spent so much time around? Say again? So when you returned, you didn't have that, um, that trust factor. You didn't have those people anymore that you had trusted so deeply for such a long time. Was there a struggle associated with separating yourself from them? Well, not really because I had to, because it was a contract thing. I mean, mm-hmm. it's kind of weird because you spend, I think what, eight years in the military and then like your con- my contract had ended the end of the 21st of February. Well, the 22nd, I was, I wasn't allowed to go back on base again. It's, I can't, I can't go back on base. I can't see my old wife and that's it. You get to walk away. And that's kind of a strange deal. You know, it's, it's, it was really strange to me. Yeah. It sounds like there's something really unnatural about that. Well, I think that's also part of the problem too, is that again, you share that frame of reference with these individuals and, and you don't even have to like them, but you respect them and you trust them and usually do like them. Okay. But you know, it, it's not about that. It's about your mutual dependence on each other. Um, and you share that frame of reference, and then and then you're you're denied access to that again, except through some type of civilian means, you know. So again, I think you know because I really I don't like, but it resonates with me your idea of that constant state of intermediate threat, you know, and to move from that to heightened threat, or to move from that to no threat without any kind of preparation or or any um, any buffers, you know, has got to be a just a, a roller coaster ride and horrible for the immune system and horrible for your endocrine system and, 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 and not too good for your personal life either, it seems. Yeah. Those, uh, the short-term um, effects of PTSD, could you talk, you were talking before we started recording kind of about the vigilance that set in. Um, could you talk a bit about that? And Right, sure. And that's, that's something, he, one of the words that Lucas used was, um, was that you, you have to be hyper-vigilant. Um, and hypervigilance or hyperarousal uh, is one of the first noticeable behavioral signs of PTSD. And so it's almost as if going into this situation, you're skipping over the first step of having experienced something traumatic by having to be and, and, and understanding why you need to be at that intermediate level of threat all the time. Um, and so the, the first comes that hypervigilance, that hyperarousal. And then because of that, that hyperarousal or vigilance, um, you're more likely to detect uh, sources of threat. Um, at the same time, what's happening is that you're losing uh, synaptic connectivity with things like the amygdala and the limbic system in general, so you can't inhibit emotional responses. You have trouble inhibiting fear responses. Um, that causes a heightened response to threat. So now things that might not normally be at the level of threat become threats. Um, and then I can see, you know, I can see this philosophically, but it's very hard to understand it experientially, how this same process is going to, to carry over into civilian life, where things that are not threatening appear threatening uh, because you've, you've, you've been asked to come out of this level of, of arousal, but you can't just do it. You, know, you can't just have a beer and not be stressed about it anymore. It's just, it's just not, not possible. Also, what I see about this, it, this looks exactly like um, CTE or traumatic brain injury. Um, in the cascade of events that exposure to these types of events makes subsequent exposure to them more detrimental to the health of the, of the system. So 
the longer the soldiers are in this uh, type of environment, the more likely they are to perceive threat or act on threat or, or, to, or, or to have PTSD, just like in, in uh, 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 traumatic brain injury where repeated blows to the head, even subconcussive blows, are going to eventually cause CTE. So I, I see that's what's happening. We have these big rates of post-traumatic stress disorder, bigger than anywhere else in the world, and larger than they've been in the past for like World War II even, which must have been horrible. I mean, all, world, all war must be horrible. Um, but the, the rates keep going up. Um, and I think part of that is, is that we're, we're not interrupting this, this pathophysiology at the right time. We can interrupt it socially. We can interrupt it uh, medicinally. We can interrupt it with um, um, other types of therapeutic treatments, um, therapy, for example. Mm -hmm. um, and then once it gets to a certain point, then I'm not sure that uh, we can go back and do anything about it, okay? Even though they are working on actual medications now for PTSD, other than anti-anxiety medications. So medications that uh, promote um, brain-derived neurotrophic factor uh, to increase connectivity and to sort of hook those things up that have become discoupled in, in that stressful environment. So there, another thing that we talked about before we started recording, there are actual measure, uh, measurable things that you can you can tell uh, that the level, or not necessarily the level, but whether or not somebody has PTSD and the effect that it's having neurologically and actually on the person that can't really be denied, correct? Right, yeah, so the, you know, a lot of these studies are done with rats, but those studies are starting to be done with humans because that's the, the development of the drugs really depends on human, human models, not rat models. Um, but uh, different levels of proteins, um, uh, 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 different levels of for this, for example, that BD and uh, NF, the brain-derived neurotrophic factor, can be found in serum levels. They can also be found in interstitial tissues, so brain biopsies can find them. So we're just on the frontier of that, but I think certainly in our lifetimes, and more than likely in the next five years, we're going to have medications both for CTE and for post-traumatic stress disorder that work on other things besides the symptoms, which are just, which are anxiety and depression. You know, so we just treat the symptoms, and we don't treat the cause, the cause of the symptoms. Mm -hmm. Another thing that I wanted to consider um, with the, the seemingly constant rising rates of uh, PTSD or people qualifying, or um, th they correspond with rising rates in anxiety and depression and things like that in society. And it seems that the military people who are returning are sort of a reflection of the society that they're coming from. So could you speak a bit on that as far as... Um, whether or not that's measurable or what's going on with it, the community aspect of it was fascinating to me. The idea of people just not being as closely connected to each other and that being something that throughout the course of human history, people have a, a close community and they're able to trust and rely on each other like you can in the armed forces. And uh, upon returning to a, a community where you're not only removed from that, but the people in your community who may never have served at all are completely removed from that as well. Um, what sort of an effect does that have on this whole process? Well, I mean, we're about to write a, uh, an award-winning book if we go down this, yeah. this, this road. We open up a lot of boxes here. Um, you know, I think that we, in our society, we've become less connected. Um, and so we're on the phone all the time, but we're not really talking to anybody. Mm -hmm. um, so tech, tech, uh, from a technology perspective, we're all connected more than we've ever been. But I think from a social perspective, we're less connected. Um, so you see families not spending as much time. You see people spending more time on their phone and not talking to each other. So we're getting this, this fractured society from that. Um, and also now, just uh, as 
as war um, is able to reach all over the globe now with nuclear weapons, uh, terrorist attacks, uh, um, uh, attacks by individuals at schools or churches, um, we, we're putting our children in a state of this sort of intermediate threat all the time too. So I think that's a very astute thing is that bringing back our soldiers is like a microcosm of probably what's happening in our society now um, is that people are, are forced to face very traumatic things and it's making them hypervigilant and then in those hypervigilant states, they're just getting, it's, a, it's just causing a chain reaction. Um, so it's, I don't really know what to do about that other than putting your phone down and having a conversation with your neighbors. Mm -hmm. uh, but it does seem that rates of depression and anxiety are increasing. Um, and some of, some of these, I mean, of course, all of this is biology. Mm -hmm. um, and there are certainly genetic factors that make some people prone to these disorders and not. Um, but but the, I certainly see a huge societal influence on those on those increases. Yeah. Now, what years did you serve? I, I never asked that. Uh, uh, 2005 to 2012. So from 2005 to 2012, I imagine, just societally from leaving to returning, which you've already talked about a bit, there must have been a huge change in the way that you just saw people interacting with each other and the relationships that they had. Um, how did that affect you in returning and, and trying to get back to what most would consider a normal lifestyle? Like I said, the, uh, I came back and people were just moved on. Mm -hmm. So you got to you know, make a new life, and that's hard. And, uh, and on top of that, you get out, so you lose all your friends in the military because the contract says the 22nd of February, so you got to move on from there. And so it's like you just push at the door almost in a way. Uh, I mean, you, you can still call your friends, but your, your life just moved on, and you gotta, you got to go. You have no choice. And I think that's probably part of the issue, too, is it's like they kick people out because your contract's done. See you later. And there's a VA if you want to go to the VA, and good luck. Yeah. Do you feel when you returned that you were able to – were there people that you could have a, a conversation with about your experiences like – in the past, you may have been able to, if it was a tight-knit community, um, again, going back to kind of that huge rabbit hole that we could fall into pretty quickly here. But um, I imagine just evolutionarily, again, you'd be able to relate to the people around you for a long period of time. That was removed. And then the other thing that's removed is just that community connection in general. So was there anybody uh, when you returned or any groups that you felt that you could really express yourself to and, and maybe get a little bit of a a better feeling about your experiences or was that lost too? That was lost too. Yeah. I just had to move on completely. Yeah. It's, it's really hard, I guess. Looking back. In the discussion that we had sort of started earlier on um, veterans coming back and kind of being accepted by society or at least being having an open discourse with society, um, we have holidays that are pretty much specifically you would think for that purpose, a day like Veterans Day. Um, as a veteran yourself, do you see any benefit to holidays like that or any opportunity to maybe increase this public discourse that, that we're having or lacking now? I mean, uh, I guess I have to ask, uh, what, like, what is a public discourse, you think, that's going on right now? So it seems, to me at least, that because there's so few people that relate to the experiences that somebody like you has had, it's hard to talk about those experiences without, again, coming back to that stigma of, oh, that person is way different than I am, and, uh, you know, I'm going to keep my distance a bit, um, which I don't know if you've experienced anything like that. But um, just I imagine that a, a big healing process and one of the treatments that they use for PTSD is the idea of exposure treatment, of just being able to talk about the things that are affecting you and how that has healing properties. But 
it seems that that's removed from so many people unless they seek uh, professional help. So maybe just an opportunity for veterans to come together and talk to the, the public. I don't know what that setting would be, but about their experiences and having that open dialogue uh, between one another. I, I don't know if that would actually help or, you know, it just it seems that there has to be some sort of a, a process that would be better than what the process is now. Yeah. Uh, well, I guess the, the one thing that did help me when I was going to first got out was went to, uh, you know, my first undergrad class and I, I, I seeked out the, uh, the, the older people as I figured like there would be probably be, be military and, and some people were, and that's the people who I actually connected with was other military guys. And so I guess that was probably the best way to transition. You just meet some other ex military guys and then eventually you'd start integrating into society better and just kind of get that, you know, that, that military mode out of your head. And that military mode is, is it's, it's hard to get out cause you're in this kind of systematic, uh, way of looking at life, you know, and I, and, uh, all of a sudden you have this structure and all of a sudden you don't have this structure and it's, it's a, it's a transition. Can you imagine if like some civilian groups came together and put together the, you know, follow these decompression models that some other countries use, um, and don't rely on the military or the government to do this, mm-hmm. uh, do this as individuals, um, of the United States. And we could, you know, have these where, where uh, soldiers where, where vets could come together and have these conversations, have a structured environment for a couple of weeks where they have to do this or do that. But what they're having to do are things that they would like to do, like get a massage or, mm-hmm. or play basketball or whatever it is that they want to do. Okay. And then, and then, you know, let, so to prevent that kind of closing the door thing. And so the military, uh, because the military is, is, is the military spends a lot of money, obviously, but it's so small and it's number of participants. Um, that the military is probably not going to do something like that. The military is running it like a business. They're going to say, okay, well, you've given your service, we've paid you, and then this is your last day. Mm. But I think it would be beautiful if there were civilian groups that could, where uh, returning soldiers could come and they could join these groups. And they're not like support groups. You know, they're, they are support groups, um, but it's, it's opportunities for them to share their experiences because they will understand each other, okay? And then having a schedule, and that schedule, they can be, in a sense, weaned off that schedule, and then and then sort of come back into society like that. So, you know, I think these are things, these are huge problems, but I think these are things that, that p- perhaps we can take care of ourselves. Um, and I think the bigger things, like changing society as a whole, even those are wonderful things. You know, we want to change the way people talk to each other. We want to change the way uh, children feel in schools. We want to, you know, th- those are big problems. And to, to chisel away at those is going to take forever. Mm-hmm. You know, but I think we can find small things like, getting citizen groups to come together and put these little coalitions together where they welcome um, uh, returning soldiers back um, and they provide some structure. And that takes funding, but then you, need, you get donors and things like that. Um, you know, also, I know, so my father was in the military. Um, my father's the youngest of eight brothers. All of them were in the military. So they served from World War II to the Korean War and then up into the Vietnam War. Um, and they're reintegration back in society was was basically the same thing that Lucas was saying. It was like one day they were in the military and then one day they weren't, you know. Um, and society was certainly different then, so maybe mm-hmm. they didn't have as much of a problem. Um, uh, but it's 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 too abrupt of a change um, is what I think. And so so I see some promise in this and, and I thank you for the opportunity to have this conversation and I especially thank Lucas for being willing to, to sit here and talk about these difficult subjects. Um, that there are actual things that we can do. 
um, other than just being saying this is a terrible situation. Look at this. Yeah, this seems to be one area, um, another another rabbit hole that we could slide into. But the country itself is just seemingly so divided in so many areas that uh, this is one of the few that I imagine most people would get behind uh, supporting veterans. I think that you'd get a pretty much 100% success rate on either side that you looked at. Um, so and that was another question I had for you. Uh, in serving in the, the groups that you did and having those trust relationships with people, I imagine it was people from all different walks of life. Um, so what did you learn from the, your military service that maybe other people could understand about just dealing with other people? Because the, putting the trust in somebody, no matter where they're from or, you know, the race, religion, none of that really matters. Um, and then when you return, you see the country divided along all these separate lines. And I imagine that's frustrating having sacrificed so much. Yeah, uh, well, you're right. I think going to military, you uh, it's more of a of an individual approach to to knowing someone else rather than judging someone by their um, by their by their you know by their race or sex, or whatever. So, yeah, a lot of people I met in the military, I, uh, like I, I I judge them by their by their merit, really. You know, if if they're what they've done and what they do with their lives and and how they conduct themselves, and then. I don't, try, I don't judge them based on their race or whatever, uh, and so that, that, that's that kind of affects the way you. I don't think you can have a really good trust with somebody unless you do do that, have mm-hmm. have an individual connection with somebody. Uh, if you don't, I feel like that's that's a necessity to have that absolute trust with someone to know who they are. Now the idea of uh, again these the conversation is just so many different layers and so many different corners that you could dig into. But the idea of serving um, in the military, you're representing one nation, and that's where the, the unity thing comes in. When you returned, was it frustrating to see such a, a separation? And how do you think that affects um, veterans kind of ingratiating themselves back into society and just making themselves feel at home again? Are you talking like a, like a divided political culture? Yeah. Well, I, I think that people uh, with the same like, like mindset hang out with other people with the same like mindset. So uh, you could come back. I mean, for me, anyways, I came back. I, I didn't really notice it because I, it, was a, it, was a, it was a slow progression anyways, you know. 2012, between, between 2012 and now is a big difference mm-hmm. uh, and a big division has, has started. So, uh, it's, I mean, it's still going on right now. It's, it's just the way people are right now. They're just kind of dividing into their little political camps. And it's, it's, it is hard. Uh, and I got to want to ask this question, Dr. Sorrells, is, I, one stat I looked at it was a lot of PTSD doesn't get diagnosed till years after. What is the uh, the, the physiology behind that? Yeah, that's that. Why I was trying to make the connection between uh, PTSD and traumatic brain injuries. That the same thing can happen there. So a kid can have subconcussive blows playing football in high school, let's say, okay, and not really a um, um, a concussion, okay. So not isolated, you know, not, you can't do much about a concussion anyway. Um, and then after that initial uh, blow to the head, that subconcussive event, you have a, a cascade of events that makes the brain more vulnerable to another blow. Okay. So, but that, that extent of that vulnerability in, P, in excuse me, in, in, in mild traumatic brain injury can be months. Okay. So you get hit in the head subconcussively you don't pass out okay six months later you hit in the head same thing subconcussive both but this time you do pass out okay
okay? Because now the brain is more vulnerable to that second blow because of that first blow, okay? So even in something, I mean, so if, you know, people say, okay, PTSD, well, it's just, it's in your head, you know, it's like a, you, you've got a problem, okay? It's, they, they don't, but when someone has a concussion, they don't say, well, it's in your head, you have a problem. But pathophysiologically, neurophysiologically, the, the cascade of events that happens after exposure to, tra to traumatic events and exposure to head blows are very, very similar. So the same thing can happen in PTSD. There can be something that was maybe subacute at some point in your life or something that was acute, for example, in a combat situation. Um, and in a, in a sense, that that stays not dormant, but it stays, the brain becomes more vulnerable and then something else can participate the, uh, the, the manifestation of that PTSD. So for example, you saw something horrible in combat, but your training and everything, you kept your cool, everything was fine. And then two years later, you see a kid get hit on the street with, by a bus and bang, here comes your full blown PTSD. So a lot of times they have triggering events but a lot of times those triggering events are so subtle because they're cumulative, you know, and so someone could, could have uh, PTSD after being in the military because of something that happened to them in childhood that the military made more sort of subacute, okay, or the military made it more acute, and then the stress of being in that intermediate threat zone all the time precipitates that, and then the, the smaller events cause the PTSD. Is that kind of what you were getting at? Yeah. Now, another thing that I wanted to talk to you about while we had you here um, is this, it's, it's hard to explain it uh, from my perspective because I don't have the perspective that you do, but you hear so often this desire to, um, when veterans return, they want to return to the battlefield. They want to go back and have that experience all over again. Um, did you experience anything like that, or can you explain where that may come from? Well, yeah, I mean, I if if say right now, if I was, you know, twenty years old, I would go back again right now. You know, it's just that level of excitement that that you can't have anywhere else. For me, it was a, a daily thing. Something could, I mean, like one day it could be doing something crazy, another day it could be doing something totally different, even the same as crazy. You know, I had the always excitement level, and you have that. You know, like I said, you're always in that constant state of vigilance. So is that always that heightened level of, of you know, of of that uh adrenaline all the time and you just you you start to enjoy it a lot and uh yeah it was very hard coming back like i said uh, the next day you're out they, they kick you out of the military and you're just on your on your own life and you're going to school and you're sitting in your in a desk for eight hours ten hours whatever and you have no excitement whatsoever and you begin to to you know go back and dream about oh yeah back in the military i was able to do like you know skydive fridays or like scuba dive in Key West or like, you know, all this kind of fun things. And now you're just sitting in this desk and you're just going back to square one, you know, with 18 year olds and you're, and you're 26, you know, like, mm -hmm. and it's, it's kind of the world kind of flipped upside down on you somewhere. Well, you're setting to be a doctor now. So that's what it is. And talking about the, some of the symptoms that people go through with um, PTSD, with that, the vigilance and that, that hyper just noticing sounds or there's, a benefit to that, I would imagine. Um, but you talk about it in the terms of the, the degeneration. Um, so can you talk about, I imagine, again, if you're in combat, you want to be hypervigilant and you want to notice sounds more and you want to, you know, kind of be on edge because there's, there's a survival benefit to being like that. But 
then when you're no longer in those situations, is that where it becomes degenerative or is it, is it existing then? And how does that work? Well, I think it starts to exist at the, at the onset of the event, whatever the event is. Okay. Um, and then the, the changes are going to depend on sort of your level of, of, of vigilance. It's interesting because, um, when we look at something like, um, uh, Parkinson's disease, okay, which no one would think Parkinson's disease is caused by witnessing an event, okay? So Parkinson's disease looks like disease to people, okay? PTSD doesn't look like disease, okay? Um, in Parkinson's disease and in things like Alzheimer's disease, what happens is, is normal processes that are necessary for your survival, for example, apoptosis of, of cells. Cells need to die off, okay? Neurons are long-lasting cells. So they have to fight that off, okay? So things like inflammation, and there's some other uh, uh, neurotrophic factors that I won't talk about right now, but sort of protect those neurons because they have to live longer and things can go, go wrong with them, okay? So, so things like inflammation um, can, be, can be beneficial in the brain, okay? Um, then, then just like it can be for your knee, okay? But then it quickly becomes not beneficial, so I think the same type of thing is happening is that there's these, the body is compensating for, um, for this level of stress. Um, and at first that's a corrective measure. Okay. And then that, but that degeneration, that uncoupling of those, of those neural structures is important. Okay. So you can't freak out. You can't have a fear response every time you hear a sound. Okay. And, and the, the soldiers are trained not to do this, okay? So what's happening to them is, is so you're going down this road, is, is sort of beneficial to their survival, okay? But then after they're out of that situation, the degeneration continues, the uncoupling continues, and now it's pathological. So I think the same thing you see in other neurodegenerative diseases that the brain executes some processes that look like they're, they're not good, they look degenerative when they're kicked on, okay? But they're required for small, amounts of time. Then after that amount of time, if it keeps going, then you have neuropathology. So I think it's a very, very similar uh, situation here. Hmm. Now there are, there are two different types. Um, I don't know if this relates to your thing of uh, it being a delayed onset of the PTSD, but in my research of it, it seemed that there was um, acute PTSD, which is uh, just a short time after whatever the event was, where you sort of have that uh, sensation of being on edge and being hypervigilant. And then the things that come years later, so uh, a Vietnam veteran, for example, uh, developing PTSD years and years later, probably because of, is it is it those building series of events that lead to that? Is it kind of like uh, just chipping away at the stone? Right, until it cracks? exactly. Yeah, that's that's my take on it. Yeah. Mm. Now, Paul, I, you said like one one stat that I thought was interesting was that there's more PTSD now than there was, in, in, in service members than there was in the what the fifties, whatever. Mm. I think, I mean, there's, uh, from right now, I, I, I think there's a lot of incentive, too, for people to claim they have PTSD. I'm not sure they do or not, but there's, there's a big incentive, you know, for the VA to, to they give you a, a disability rating, and now you're getting, you know, X amount of money for until the day you die. Now, I guess, Dr. Soros, my, my question to you is, how do you differentiate what is actually PTSD and what is this anxiety disorder? You know, at this at this point right now, there's, there's no way. So it's all behavioral, you know, and... I would say if you told me five years ago that we would develop blood tests for these things, I would have said that's not possible. But here, five years later, we actually have ways to look in serum and blood serum to look at different levels of whatever that may be, okay? 
um, and detect some type of, of um, uh, pathology that's resulting from post-traumatic stress disorder. So whether that's hormone levels, cortisol levels, um, uh, or d other different types of protein in the blood, we're there now, okay? But then the dangerous thing is then to use that test as a, as a sort of a litmus test for malingering. You know, so now I, I would hate to think that we would challenge everyone that said they had PTSD to say, well, do you really? You know, so it's a, it's a bad slippery slope there. And you're right, there, there may be some malingering or some people that, that are claiming PTSD because it's, it's, it's beneficial to do. You know, but even if we developed a blood test, I'm not sure that I would want to use it, you know, because um, it's your interpretation. I mean, of course, there are going to be people that abuse the system, okay? But if I give you a blood test and you don't have, you don't have heightened cortisol levels, let's say, okay, a stress hormone, and then so can I say, well, you're, you're just fine, you know? So I'm not privy to the inner workings of your head, of your mind, okay? So I think that potentially there will be ways, and what will happen is that it will become a diagnosis, okay? So even before you maybe even have the symptoms, you can be diagnosed, so it would be a mandatory test that when you're done with military combat or military service that you would have this blood test or this scan or whatever it might be, okay? And then we can get you treatment, hopefully before it manifests itself. You know, but at this point, we're basically just having to take people's word for it, and so I think that you're right that probably some of the increase is because of the ease of that. Also, it's a double-edged sword because, because claiming PTSD um, is going to be stigmatizing for some, okay? Um, and, but our culture has worked hard at trying to destigmatize mental illness. Has it, ha has it happened yet? No, okay? But we're working at that. So, for example, I was talking about my family and my family's military days. So my, my grandfather was in the First World War, okay? And he drove a, a mule cart to collect dead bodies and injured people, okay? He was a medic, and his, he came off the farm. He had no medical training. <laughs> You're going to be a medic, okay? So he told me stories when I was a kid that I still remember that. I was like, I can't imagine how anybody would live through that, okay? And then his generation was such that they they would he would not admit to a, a nail being his foot if you if you saw it he would say there's no nail in my foot okay you know and then as we've sort of destigmatized mental illness some then I think it becomes more salient in people's minds that well I could go down this road okay and I think my my maybe naive hope in the in the in the goodness of humanity says that 90% of those people need it okay. And maybe more, you know, but maybe 10, 5 or 10% are kind of going down that road, okay? Uh, but I think eventually we will have better diagnostic uh, um, techniques to, to look at these things and hopefully get treatment before the symptoms become evident. Thanks again for tuning into the Scientific Method. To be the first to hear our upcoming episodes, including our conversations with the nation's leading healthcare experts on topics such as opioids in America, healthcare reform, corporate funded research, and more, subscribe now.